Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary PSL. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, The Strengthening of the Beloved. So during World War II, the German Air Force, known as the Luftwaffe, in German that means air weapon, they carried out a major bombing campaign over Great Britain for eight long months. It was called the Blitz, or Lightning War, and it was authorized by none other, perhaps the greatest false teacher who ever lived, <laughs> Adolf Hitler. From September 1940 until May of 1941, bombers from Germany flew over England, and they just attacked the cities, the industrial areas, and all the ports, or many of the ports at least, in England. The results were absolutely devastating. Thousands of tons of explosives were dropped from the skies, killing about 32,000 people. And so, though many people perished during the Blitz, the good news is that many more people were saved for this reason right here. They were saved because of air raid sirens. And so these sirens were placed in many British cities, and what happened was, when they sounded, everybody knew, hey, the enemy's coming, it's time to get into a bomb shelter. And so when danger was closing in, you know, thank God, somebody sounded the alarm, and the result was that many people were saved. So just like Hitler, right, sent out his forces to cause as much problems, to wreak as much havoc as possible and as many lives as possible, you need to know that Satan has the same agenda. Satan, ladies and gentlemen, has sent out his forces as well to wreak havoc and not just to hurt people physically, but to damage souls. And so what are his forces? His forces are false teachers. They're false prophets. I want you to look at what John has to say in 1 John 4, 1. Not a few, no, but many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, how many of you guys know nothing's changed over 2,000 years? There's still thousands and thousands and thousands of false teachers and false prophets all over the world. And so, of course, these false prophets, they don't use bombs and bullets in order to destroy people. They use their false teachings. In the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 4.1, they use, quote unquote, the doctrines of demons. The doctrine of demons. And by the way, what is false teaching, essentially? False teaching is any doctrine, any teaching that contradicts what it says in the word of God. And that's why it's so important that we know the word. And so just like it was vital for faithful soldiers to sound the alarm when the Nazis were threatening England, so it's always been vital for the last 2,000 years, it's always been vital that faithful Christians sound the alarm when false teachings, teachers are threatening the church. We gotta sound the alarm. And by the way, one of the guys who was the best at it was Jude. <laughs> Jude was a faithful Christian, and through his fiery letter, what did he do? He, he, he sounded the alarm, right, to rouse the church so that we would wake up and so that we would not allow ourselves to be damaged spiritually by false teachers. And by the way, Jude wasn't the only one who sounded the alarm. Did you know that Christ sounded the alarm? The apostles sounded the alarm. Look at what Jesus said. Jesus said, beware of false prophets. 
These guys are sneaky. Look at this. Who come to you in what kind of clothing? Sheep's clothing, they look, they look just like us. They come to us in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, there's the problem, they're ravenous wolves. And so, of course, Jesus passes on the baton to Peter. Peter says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. This is one of my, you know, um, things I hope never happens to this church, is that people don't sneak in here and start to teach destructive heresies or false teachings among the people. And so they, they come in, they secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master, that's Jesus, who bought them. And of course, Jesus also passed on the baton to Paul. And Paul said, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. By the way, how many of you guys know that we're in that day today? People do not endure sound biblical teaching. They don't want to hear this book taught. And so, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves, teachers, to suit their own passions. Kind of tell them what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear. And they'll turn many from listening to the truth and they'll wander off into myths. Jesus also passed on the baton to John. John said, beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Everybody, please look at me. How do we test the spirits? Right here. Test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many, not a few, many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. I love that. That's not the only test, but that is, I believe, the primary test to separate who's true, who's false. Those who are false, ladies and gentlemen, they deny the incarnation. They deny John 1.1 and John 1.14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. They reject that. They don't believe that Jesus Christ is the eternal God who took on human flesh. They don't believe he's 100% God, 100% man. They think he's some kind of created being. And so beware, halfway down, every spirit that does not confess Jesus. In the context, that's the incarnate Jesus. Because how many of you guys know there's lots of Jesuses out there? You got the Jesus of the cults. He's not the real Jesus. So anyone who does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the who? The Antichrist. And so, man, just like the British were thankful for those who sounded the alarm, right, to alert uh, the, the English people that, hey, the Nazis are coming, so we, as Christians, were so grateful for Jesus. We're so grateful for Paul and Peter and John and the apostles and Jude who have sounded the alarm to protect us from the enemy. But ladies and gentlemen, there's one more siren in this little letter that Jude right now is sounding off to warn us, and that's in verses 17 through 19. All right, so please look at verse 17. Right now, if you're looking at Jude verse 17, can you say amen? So visitors, this is what we do most of the time. We go through books of the Bible verse by verse because we really believe that this book is God's word. But you must remember, and I want you guys to shout out the next word. 
Beloved. Can everybody say, everybody say beloved? Beloved. beloved. Who's that? You guys. If you know Jesus Christ, you're part of the beloved. He's differentiating you from false teachers. I love that. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles. There it is. What are we devoted to at Calvary Port St. Lucie? We're devoted to the same thing the early church was devoted to 2,000 years ago. Acts 2.42, we're devoted to the apostles' teaching. This is one of the things that makes us a New Testament church in this place. And so look at this. But you must remember, beloved, the prediction of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in verse 18, the last, in the last time there will be scoffers. Okay, so can you hear it? The alarm's going off. Enemies come, the enemy's coming in. What do they look like? They're scoffers. They follow their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions. They're worldly people and they're devoid of the spirit. So what does this last siren warn us about? The last siren warns us that false teachers will, in verse 18, they'll be scoffers. That means that they laugh and they ridicule the truth. What truth? Bible truth. They laugh at this book. They scorn the teachings of the word of God. They're scoffers. Verse 18, they follow ungodly passions. What does that mean? That means that they give in to lustful living. As I've said so many times in this series, I think we're in message five, there'll be six total messages um, in Jude, but as I've said so many times, you look at the private lives of many of these false teachers and they're immoral. And so they give in to lustful living. Verse 19, they cause divisions. What does that mean? They sneak into churches and... They cause church splits. Verse 19 says they're worldly. That means they act like the culture. You can't really tell them. There's not, not a lot of difference between them and the way the culture acts. And then verse 19, they're devoid of the spirit. What does that mean? That means that they lack real spiritual life. Why? Because they've never been born again. They're religious. They speak religious things. But how many of you guys know that you can be religious and never be born again? And so these guys are devoid of the Holy Spirit. And so we have now seen at least 18 characteristics in Jude of false teachers. It's such a small letter, but now there's 18. Now, some of these he repeats. I thought it'd be helpful for you to see all of them on one screen, all right? And so here they are, the 18 characteristics straight from the book of Jude of false teachers. Number one, they're deceptive. They're prideful. They're faithless, they're insubordinate, they revile angels, that means they slander authority. You remember the teaching, whether it's in the heavenly realm or the earthly realm, they slander, they revile authority. They approach God their own way, like Cain, through meritorious works. Do you know that every single human religion is all about working your way to heaven? or at least the vast majority of them, Christianity, biblical Christianity alone, teaches that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so they approach God their own way, they're greedy, they make a, empty promises, they're fruitless. A lot of these guys are flashy, but it's like, wow, right? But they're temporary, they don't last. They're grumblers, they're malcontents, they flatter you, 
not because they want to build you up, but because they want to get something from you. They scoff at the truth, they're ungodly, they're divisive, they're worldly, and they're devoid of the spirit. So if you're wondering if somebody's a false teacher, all you gotta do is take those 18 characteristics, compare them to the person you're wondering about, because Jesus said, by their fruit, you will know them. By the way, how do we know who a true teacher is? You just take the opposite of the list. And so the 18 characteristics of true teachers, well, they're honest, and they're humble, they're faithful, and they're submissive. They don't slander people, they approach God his way. There's only one way, you guys know this. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. They're generous, they keep their promises, they're fruitful, they're dependable. They may not be all flashy, right, but they're dependable. They're thankful, they're content, They'll encourage you not to get something from you just because they love you and they wanna see you built up in the faith. They champion the truth, they're godly in their private lives, they promote unity, they're spiritual and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. All right, so um, if you're wondering if somebody's a true teacher, take those 18 characteristics, compare them to the person you're wondering about because Jesus said by their fruit, you're gonna know them. All right, so what do we need to do? in order not to be duped by false teachers. What do we need to do in our lives? How many of you guys wanna end well? Let me see your hands if you really wanna end well. I do too. I'm gonna raise two hands. I wanna end well, right? And so if you wanna end well, you gotta get strong in the faith. Gotta get strong. And that's what the rest of this message is gonna be all about. And so how can we become spiritually strong? The answer to that question is in verses 20 and 21. All right, so everybody look at verse 20 now. But you, and I want you to shout out the next word, go ahead. Beloved. Beloved, that's you guys if you know Christ. Understand your identity in Christ, it's so important. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Now, when we consider the Greek grammatical structure um, of verses 20 and 21, here's what we find out. There is an imperative that's surrounded by three present participles. Okay, and so what is the imperative? What does imperative mean? It means it's a commandment. It's a commandment for Christians 2,000 years ago. It's a commandment for all of us in this room. And, and here's the imperative. Here's the commandment. In the original Greek, keep yourself in the love of God. That's a command. And how do we do that? We follow, in the power of the Holy Spirit, we follow the three present participles that surround that command. That means that throughout our lives, we continue to build ourselves up in our most holy faith. We continue to pray in the Holy Spirit and we continue to eagerly wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you guys are excited that Christ could come at any time, right? So this is what we do. This is what we do to keep ourselves in the love of God. All right, so let's start with the imperative. If you're taking notes, keep yourself in the love of God. There's the commandment in the Greek. 
Now, I want you to notice something. I'm so glad it's raining. If your windows are down, wanna go put your windows down, but I am glad it's raining because that means we're gonna go for a while here. Some of you guys are scared. You're scared. All right, so I want you to notice something. Keep yourself in the love of God. Did you guys notice it doesn't say keep yourself saved? You see that? You know why it doesn't say keep yourself saved? Because Jude already said in verse one that we're, as the beloved, we're loved by the Father and we're kept for Jesus Christ. We don't keep ourselves saved, God keeps us saved. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I'm talking about the aspect of our salvation called justification. We don't keep ourselves justified. That is a gift from God. Nonetheless, we are commanded to keep ourselves in the love of God. And that takes some action on our part. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand. It does not take any action on our part to make God love us. You guys get that, right? There's nothing that you can do, there's nothing that I can do to make God love us. Here's what you need to know. Ladies and gentlemen, God is love. That's his nature, that's who he is. Yes, we should celebrate that, he's love. He's not an evil God, he's, he's, he's a loving God. And the Bible says that God so loved the world. Now does he love the world because the world's so good? No, have you seen the news lately? He doesn't love the world because we're so good. Right now, if you're listening to me, I want you to say amen. amen. Get this right here. God does not love us because of what we do. He loves us because of who he is. That's the truth. There's nothing you and I can do to ever make God love us more. I love the way David Guzik put it. He said, God's love extends everywhere and nothing can separate us from it, but we can deny ourselves of the what of his love, the benefits of his love. So we can't stop God from loving us. He'll always love us, but we can deny ourselves of the benefits of his love. Said another way, God's love is like a powerful waterfall. It just flows and flows, cascading ever downward. It never runs dry. But here's the million dollar question. What do we need to do to receive the benefits of his love? We need to get up underneath it. Right now, we can all go outside and experience what that guy's experiencing right now. If you want to experience the benefits of his love, you got to get up underneath his love. As Jude said, under the inspiration of the Spirit, you got to keep yourself in the love of God. Jesus put it this way. He said in John 15, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love, right? Live in my love, stay in my love, remain in my love. How do you do that, Jesus? Next verse. If, it's a big if. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide 
in his love. If you really want to get under the spout where the blessings flow out, if you really want to experience the benefits of God's love, what do you got to do? Jesus said, keep my commandments. And I have written down at the bottom of my Bible here, we don't keep Christ's commands to make him love us. He already loves us. We keep his commands to abide in his love and to receive the benefits of his love. And that's a choice. Just like it's a choice for that guy on a hot, humid day and he's thirsty and he's hot, right? Just like it's a choice for him to get up underneath that cool, cascading water, it's a choice for us to do what? To keep ourselves in the love of God. I'll, I'll illustrate it another way. It's kind of like the prodigal son. Now I got a question for you, I want you to answer out loud, okay? When the prodigal son chose to leave his father and go into a faraway country and live like a heathen, did the father ever stop loving his son? No, never. I don't care what the guy did in the faraway land. The father never stopped loving his son. While the son was away, here's what the father did. He'd stand and he would scan the horizon, right? Waiting and looking and praying for his son that he loved to one day come home. And so the son could not stop his dad from loving him. But the son did, in fact, stop receiving the benefits of his father's love when he chose to walk away. And it is a choice. And you remember the story. He received his inheritance early, and what did he do with all that money? He squandered it, he wasted it on wild living prostitutes. And then all of a sudden, he's got no money, he's broke, so he's gotta go to work. So he gets hired by a farmer, and next thing you know, he's watching over a pig pen. And he's so hungry, he's longing for the pig slop, wishing he could eat the same thing the pigs are eating. He reached rock bottom. Ladies and gentlemen, how many of you guys know that sometimes you gotta reach rock bottom before you realize it's time to look up? <laughs> and by the way, don't make good what God is making bad in somebody's life. There may be somebody in your life and they're, 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 they're going downward because they made a choice to walk away from God and you keep bailing the person out. Pray about it, but maybe what you need to do is just pray for the person and let God do a work in that person's life. Maybe that's what needs to happen. And so this, this guy, man, he hits rock bottom. And he finally comes to his senses and he thinks, man, I had an abundance in my father's house. I am done living like a pig. I'm going home. And he started to go home and you know the story. The father's scanning the horizon and there he is, right? This little blip on the far horizon. He's getting closer and closer. It's my boy. And so what does he do? He takes off running running for his son and he grabs him and he holds him and he kisses him and the son's like, dad, dad, right in between kisses, dad, you know, I've sinned against you, I've sinned against heaven, I don't deserve to be your son. And the father looks at the servant and he goes, hey, go get the best robe and put it on my boy. Go get the ring and put it on his hand. Go get the shoes. He doesn't even have shoes. Go get some shoes and put them on his feet and fill the, uh, 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 kill the, the fatted calf Guess what, everybody? My boy's home. We're gonna celebrate. Now here's what you need to know. Just like a waterfall 
cascading down, the father's love never stopped for his boy. But the son didn't receive the benefits of that love until he repented and until he came home. I don't know who I'm talking about or talking to this, this, this morning, but if you're in a faraway country right now, here's what you need to know. God loves you. He misses you. He's scanning the horizon. He's waiting for you to come home. And you need to go home. If you're ever gonna receive the benefits of God's love, you got to repent and you gotta go back to him. And I guarantee you, I say this a lot too, he's not gonna do this. He's always like the father in the prodigal son story. He's always gonna be like this. Go back to him. Let the love of God motivate you to repentance. Do it today. And so Jude commands not just the prodigals, but the whole Christian community. It's a commandment. Keep yourself in the love of God. All right, so how do we do that, Jude? We do that by keeping, in the power of the Spirit, the three present participles that surround the imperative in the original language. All right, so participle number one, how do you keep yourself in the love of God? You gotta build yourself up in your most holy faith. How do we keep ourselves in the love of God? Start building yourself up. Now the phrase, your most holy faith, refers to the true Christian faith. Now, what is the true Christian faith? This is gonna be the third and last time I define it for everybody. It is that body of truth, Jude verse three, that was once for all delivered, past tense, delivered to the church by Jesus Christ through his apostles and their associates, the apostles in the first century, and recorded in the New Testament. I mean, this is not in the notes, let me just do a little side note, but we don't believe as Protestants in this place, we don't believe in apostolic succession. In other words, we don't believe that, that Peter passed on his apostolic authority to other popes. We don't believe Peter was the first pope, and we don't believe he passed on his apostolic authority to other popes. We also don't believe that when the pope speaks ex cathedra, concerning matters of doctrine, that, that, is all, that that's infallible. We don't believe that, that the, the Roman Catholic magisterium, that when they decide on, on, on an issue, on a teaching, that that can ever be placed, ladies and gentlemen, on the same level as God's word, no. We're Protestants, we protest against that. Do you know that the Reformation was a back to the Bible movement? Study it, man, go back 500 years and, and, and read the stories and, and learn about, man, how corrupt things were in that day and how there needed to be a back to the Bible movement at that time. And so we thank God that the Roman Catholic Church believes in the incarnation. We thank God the Roman Catholic Church has always for 2,000 years impeccably held on to the correct Christology that, that Jesus Christ is the eternal God who took on human flesh. We thank God for that. But we do not believe that, that, 
that the faith is continuing to be delivered for the last 2,000 years through the Pope and through the magisterium, we believe that this is it right here. This is it right here. The Word of God. And so, the most holy faith is that body of truth in the New Testament which we will never fully grasp until we get to know the Old Testament. How many of you guys believe that this whole book from Genesis to Revelation has been breathed out by God, right? It's, it's inspired by God, it's authoritative in our lives. And so if we make reading it and studying it a priority in our lives, what's gonna happen? We're gonna be strengthened, the strengthening of the beloved. Paul put it this way, now I commend you to God and to another motivational talk on Sunday morning. Is that what it says? You know, you, you, you go into some churches today and just ask yourself, what about this environment even remotely resembles the true church in the first century? Where's the apostles' doctrine? Where's the teaching of the word of God? Okay, and so I commend you, Paul said, to God and to the word, the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Okay, so just like a boxer, right, goes to the gym to build himself up so he doesn't get knocked down by his opponent, so you and I as Christians, we need to go back to the Bible, to, to get built up, right, so we don't get knocked down by the devil. The devil walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and he wants you. He doesn't want you to end well. He wants to do something to pick you off, to deceive you, to dupe you. And so what we gotta do is we gotta get back to the Bible. We gotta get back to God's word. We gotta actually know it. We gotta read it. We gotta study it. And one of the beautiful truths that we're gonna learn in the, in the word of God is that guess what? Christ has already won the battle. Through his death, burial, and resurrection, what did he do? He stomped on the head of a serpent. He defeated sin, death, and hell. He defeated the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so guess what, Christian? We're not fighting for victory, we're fighting from victory. And faith is our victory. Where do you get faith? Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so, man, this is what I'm talking about. This is truth. How can you keep yourself in the love of God? Present participle number two. We have to continue to pray in the Holy Spirit. I know I'm gonna step on some toes here, but what does this not mean? pray in the Holy Spirit. It does not mean that we should pray with nonsensical gibberish utterances. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe all the gifts are for today. I believe that there is a biblical, authentic gift of tongues, but it's not gibberish. The biblical, authentic gift of tongues is a real language. And so what does it mean to pray in the Holy Spirit? Well, there's two types of prayer. There's spiritual prayer 
And there's carnal prayer. Spiritual prayer is, is based on spiritual realities. Carnal prayer is based on our flesh. Spiritual prayer is based on communion with the Holy Spirit, right? Carnal prayer is all about emotionalism and hype. Work yourself up. Spiritual prayer is centered on God's will. Carnal prayer is centered on our will. Somebody once said this. Prayer is not about getting our will accomplished, but seeing whose will? God's will accomplished through us. That's what it's all about. And so, so often our prayers are self-centered. You know, God do this for me, and what do we do? We go down our self-centered list. God, I want this and this and this, and I want that and that and the other. Oh yeah, and in Jesus' name, as if that's gonna help if we put that phrase at the end. There's a better way to pray. And it's all about getting God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. And so this is another reason why it's so important to know the word of God. Because ladies and gentlemen, the more we know the word of God, the more our thinking is shaped by the word of God. And the more our thinking is shaped by the word of God, guess what? The more our prayers reflect God's will. And when our prayers reflect God's will and we're praying according to God's will, what does God do? He hears us and he answers our prayer. And that's an exciting way to live. That was so good, I'm gonna say that one again. All right, so stay with me here. You gotta get into this book. We're Americans in 2020. Most of us got like five or 10 of these around our houses and, we, and, and a lot of us don't even read it. And there's, there's, there's people in the past who gave their lives for this book. Right now I'm reading the story of um, William Tyndale. They burned him at the stake. You know why? Because he had the audacity to take the Greek and to translate it into the English Bible. He just wanted his people, the English, to have the Bible in their language instead of having the Latin Vulgate. They killed him. And here we are in America, and we got five or 10, and we don't even read it, why? Because our sin is different. Our sin is apathy. We'd rather hear a motivational speech about how good we can be. We gotta get back to the Bible. And so the more we're in the Bible, the more our thinking is shaped by the word of God, and the more our thinking is shaped by the word of God, the more our prayers are reflective of God's will. And the more we pray according to God's will, guess what, he hears us and he answers our prayer. Isn't that what John said? Look at this. This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to our will, he hears us. But I said in Jesus' name, I named it and claimed it. Doesn't matter. That's not what it says. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know we have the requests that we have asked of him. And so how do we pray in the Holy Spirit? We allow our thinking to be shaped by the word of God, we make sure our will is submitted to the spirit of God and we never forget the words of the son of God. And the son of God said, Father, not my will, 
your will be done. If Jesus prayed that way, we gotta pray that way. Last present participle, how can you keep yourself in God's love? Well, you and I both, we need to wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. That's the third and final present participle in this whole uh, phrase or phrases in verses 20 and 21. Now, when Jude said what he said, that's just straight from the Bible in number three. When he said what he said in, in, in number three, you need to know he was referring to Christ's return. And how many of you guys believe that Christ's return is imminent, right? It can happen at any moment. And so, ladies and gentlemen, there are lots of signs that still have yet to be fulfilled before the second coming of Christ. How many of you guys were with us when we studied verse by verse through Revelation, right? And so you remember from Revelation chapter six all the way until Jesus comes back in Revelation chapter 19, all that still has to be fulfilled before the second coming. And so there are many signs that have to occur during the tribulation before the second coming of Christ can take place, but there are no signs that have to occur before the Lord comes back and takes his bride home to heaven to be with him. There's just no signs. It could happen at any moment. And so Paul put it this way. Paul said, God has not destined us. Who's us? The church, the Christians, the bride of Christ, the beloved. He's not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so in the context, if you leave that verse in its context, God's wrath has to do with the day of the Lord, which refers to that future time when sudden destruction is gonna come upon the world. And God's gonna do it. He's gonna break the seals, he's gonna blow the trumpets, he's gonna pour out the bowls of wrath. As Christ's bride, as we learned from Dr. Ed Heinsohn back in February, we're not destined for his wrath. For what loving husband would ever pour out his wrath on his wife? Just not gonna happen. Now I want you to hear me now, <clears throat> because I'm talking about the gospel here. Why isn't God gonna pour out his wrath on his bride, the church? He loves us, but, but why else? Yeah, he's already poured out his wrath on Jesus, the Son of God, on the cross, in our place. God judged your sin by pouring out his wrath on Christ. This is the gospel. This is the false gospel is you gotta work harder, you gotta be better, you, maybe you'll earn your way to heaven. No, hear the gospel, let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart. Christ clothed himself with flesh and he went to a cross and he hung there and God poured out the wrath. Jesus was perfect, he was the Lamb of God who, who takes away the sins of the world. He never sinned one time, but you and I certainly have sinned, the wage of sin is death. And so instead of pouring out his wrath on us, he poured his wrath out on his son. That's the gospel, that's the truth. That's our only hope, that's our only hope. If you have any chance of taking your last breath and opening up your eyes in heaven instead of hell, you need to accept that truth. Christ absorbed the wrath of God in your place. And he rose again victorious over sin and death. So why in the world would God ever pour out his wrath on his children ever again? He won't. 
So that's why we have a position here in this local church that we believe that Christ is gonna come back and snatch his bride before the wrath comes. We're not destined for wrath, we're destined to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now what salvation was Paul speaking of in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9? I'm gonna close with this and I want you guys to stay with me to the end. What salvation was he talking about? Whenever you're reading the New Testament and you read the word saved or salvation, you need to ask yourself this question. If you're with me, say amen. What aspect of my salvation is the author speaking of here? Because there's three aspects of salvation. Biblically speaking, there's justification, there's sanctification, and there's glorification, all right? And so justification, listen to this, is when the born-again Christian makes this true statement. I have been saved from the penalty of sin. Why? Because Christ took my penalty. And justification, ladies and gentlemen, which by the way, was loud and clear cry of the reformers 500 years ago, but more importantly, it's, it's the cry of the Bible. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And when you turn to Christ and you trust him and him alone, he clothes you with his righteousness and you can say, I have been saved from the penalty of sin. Never have to worry about going to hell. Hey, is that good news or what, right? That's great news. But then, after you're justified, guess what happens? Sanctification kicks in, it's a lifelong process. And that is, I am being saved from the practice and power of sin. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit in us as we submit to him. I'm being saved from the practice and power of sin. And then, this, I believe, is the salvation that he talks about in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. Glorification. And that is, I will, I will in the future be saved from the presence of sin. And that is when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we're gonna see him as he is, changed his likeness share, meet him in the air. When he shall appear, we're gonna be like him, and we are gonna receive immortal, resurrected bodies. We're gonna be forever away from the presence of sin and there's no more death, there's no more dying, there's no more crying, no more shame. It's heaven forever. <laughs> Build yourself up in the most holy faith, amen?